0: Finally, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to um, Isaiah 32. If you um, are using the Bible in the rack in front of you that looks like this, you can find that on page 592. You'll notice as we read through the Old Testament in Isaiah that sometimes the word Lord or even God is in all caps. And when it's in all caps, it's because it's the personal name of God, Yahweh. And so we at our church uh, just read it as Yahweh when we come to that. Um, It's there in the front of the Bible in the translation notes that that's what's going on. So we just carry that through the whole scripture. So would you stand for the reading of God's word? Isaiah 32. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear Will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of stammers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning Yahweh, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails and the fruit harvest will not come. "'Tremble, you women who are at ease. "'Shudder, you complacent ones. "'Strip and make yourselves bare "'and tie slack cloth around your waists. "'Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, "'for the fruitful vine, "'for the soil of my people "'growing up in thorns and briars. "'Yes, for all the joyous houses "'in the exultant city, "'for the palace is forsaken.'" the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. This is God's word. God. You can be seated, and I ask that you join me in prayer. Father, this time in our service is not the time for me to do the work. First of all, it's our collective work. We all want to be putting our noses in the scripture and listening to what you're saying. And then it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so together, we are asking that your Holy Spirit would quicken our hearts, cause eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to treasure and lips to repeat. We're asking, Father, for your help, that what you're saying, we would hear and do. In Jesus' name, amen. We're now approximately halfway through our series in Isaiah. And to be honest, it's proved a hard book to preach through. There are many times I've opened up the passage for that coming Sunday, and as I read through it, I'm completely befuddled. Probably some of you felt the same way when I stood up on Sunday morning and read it aloud. The reference aren't always clear. The place names are foreign. Sometimes the logical flow seems elusive. And complicating matters, it's a massive book, which leaves us with several choices. We can take a couple of years to preach through it in bite-sized portions. We could just preach selections of the book and kind of gloss over certain sections. Or we can preach longer passages so that the whole text can be covered, but in a year's time. And we've chosen that latter option. So not only is Isaiah hard, we often have long passages to cover on a Sunday morning. And the bottom line of all that is this journey thus far through Isaiah has been hard as expected. But often we must cut through the hardest rock in order to find the most precious diamonds. The reasons that make Isaiah a hard series to undertake are the reasons it's rarely taught or preached. And thus the precious stones buried beneath its flinty surface remain largely unknown to most Christians. Christians. But the precious truths taught to us by the prophets are a desperately needed foundation for us to think about a host of hot-button issues today. How do we think about issues like social justice, critical race theory, intersectionality, white privilege... Or on the other hand, how do we respond to the rapidly shifting political and cultural ground? How do we respond to the increasing instability in our world? Many voices are seizing on this tumult and are trying to pull us this way or towards that action in response we as Christians can feel like we're being tossed to and fro by every wave. And what we need now as much as ever is to be grounded in the prophets. We need to learn how to think about justice and oppression not from professional athletes or best-selling books or celebrity preachers but from the book of Isaiah. We can't allow politicians or activists or self-appointed prophets to tell us how to respond to turbulent times. We must hear Isaiah. And so, collectively as a church, we are doing the hard work, the hard work of learning what Isaiah has to say, now that doesn't mean we who stand up and preach are constantly constantly making reference to whatever's dominating today's headlines. I think such preaching can be uh, lacking nutritionally. But as we learn from God's inspired preacher, Isaiah, our minds and our hearts are formed in such a way so that we can think rightly about. host of issues including today's headlines and our passage today is critical for that. You may have noticed in our passage as I read it there is a longing that pervades our passage. Did you catch it? I'm sure many of you did because You yourselves are feeling this longing in your bones. It's a longing for justice and righteousness. Those two words, justice and righteousness, occur together 16 times in the Old Testament and 13 of them are in the book of Isaiah, twice in our passage. A longing for a just and righteous world. And who is it whose bones ache for this? Who feels that longing most keenly? Who is crying out? In verse six, it's the hungry and the thirsty. In verse seven, it's the poor and the needy. You see, our world is marked by injustice. And the poor and marginalized are the ones most often crushed by such injustice. But what about the privileged class? How, how do they feel about it? Well, they're completely unaware. Not even clued into the fact that voices are crying out because of oppression and unrighteousness. Look at verse 9. They're at ease, they're complacent. In verse 13, they live in joyous houses, they reside in an exultant city. The same women described here appeared back in chapter 3 when we're told that they are haughty. And walk with outstretched necks, dressed in headbands and crescents, with perfume boxes and handbags and mirrors and linen garments. So while fools and scoundrels break the backs of the weak, the complacent benefactors of such oppression are clueless and couldn't care less. As long as I have my Kate Spade handbag and my Chanel perfume, everything's fine. I mean, I'm not above changing my Facebook profile or giving a token donation, but let's not rock the boat, honey. I don't want to equivocate here. I'm not saying that every society is equally unjust as the society at the time of Isaiah. But the themes in this passage are not unique to Isaiah's time. It's a constant theme throughout all the prophets. Jesus and the apostles reiterate the same themes for their age. And Romans 3 even suggests the wickedness of Isaiah's day is a hallmark of human nature. So while not every society is equally unjust... All societies have an element of injustice. Think about it. Children grow up in abusive homes that cause them lasting damage to their mind and to their soul. So many kids don't have the support of an engaged mom and dad So, they can't overcome things like toxic school environments. Others are pulled into addiction at an impressionable age, never able to recover. Some feel trapped in an abusive marriage, or crushed by the weight of debt, or haunted by traumatic memories. That's just us here in Georgetown. You can think of certain crime filled areas in Toronto, or brokenness in indigenous lands, or the overwhelming pain and poverty in places like India, or Somalia, or Haiti. Sometimes the oppression is tied to race. Sometimes it's rooted in gender or social class. It could be tied to disability, but it's consistently senseless. And so there is a right cry undergirding our passage, a cry for justice. A cry for righteousness. In this world, those with power tend to oppress, and those who benefit from it skip along carefree. It is the M.O. of our world. But even though there's a, a cry that is the undercurrent of our passage, our passage isn't really a cry. It's an answer to the cry. And the answer comes in two parts. Last week, Utah teased me. He went from my eight points to his three points. So Utah, I'm down to two points this week. <laughs> verses 1 to 8, which introduce the advent of a king. And verses 9 to 20, which speak of the outpouring of the spirit. Together, the king and the spirit Answer the cry. They usher in justice and righteousness. So let's look first at the advent of a king. Verses 1 to 8. Behold, verse 1 announces, a king. A king who with his princes will reign in righteousness and justice. In our series in Isaiah, we've talked about something we've called Isaiahic clues. It's kind of a cumbersome phrase, but Isaiah likes to just give little hints. Hey, something good's coming. Something good's coming. And he likes to be subtle about it and a bit elusive because it builds throughout the whole prophetic work until you're overwhelmed by the end of what the answer is to all these clues. And right here, we're getting a flashing neon light type of Isaiahic clue. It's an echo of Isaiah 9, where we had another such really bright clue. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The rod of the oppressor you've broken, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Hear the echoes? Or, if you remember, Isaiah 11 was another really bright neon light on this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. His clues are sometimes subtle, sometimes less so. He wants us to know that someone is coming that will make all things right the hope for the hurting. The good news for the downtrodden is the root from Jesse, the child who's the prince of peace. It's the king, Jesus. And for those here who are constantly blasted by the gale force winds of this world, he is the hiding place, verse 2. For those run ragged by the tempest of this world, He is your shelter. For we who thirst, He offers springs of living water. For us who are suffering, in a wearisome land he offers us his shade have you ever noticed how um, those who really feel a need are easily sold a product that promises the cure so those who cry out beat down by the brokenness of this world might be tempted to chase the latest movement of philosophy that promises them freedom. But what if what they're being sold can't deliver on its promises? Karl Marx pandered to this ache, and he gave birth to the atrocities of Lenin and Stalin. the revolutionaries in France tapped into this ache. And this gave rise to the reign of terror. History is littered with example after example. But there is a king who sits on a higher throne who came once to model the justice and mercy of his kingdom and who gave his life to redeem us rebels and who will come again to usher in the fullness of his kingdom and balance the scales of justice. And if this is true, it is the ultimate good news. The best news that the storm-tossed and wind-whipped can fix their eyes upon. I say if it's true. It is true. My heart knows it well. Now when that king comes, we're told some things are going to change. First, in verses 3 and 4, he'll change what we know. He'll change the truth that is treasured in our hearts. Eyes that were blind will perceive the truth. Ears that were stopped will hear the truth. Hearts that were hurried will treasure the truth. And lips that were confused will proclaim the truth. Back in Isaiah 6, Isaiah was told that his era would be marked by blind eyes and deaf ears. But now the prophet is saying when the king comes, truth, God's truth, will again flow. So one hallmark of King Jesus' good reign is that lies cease. Vain, vain man-made philosophies and the blindness that comes with them ends. Instead, the gospel flows freely. God's word is again regarded. It's heard. It's treasured. It's repeated. Now, as we become increasingly aware of the oppression and injustice in this world, we need to beware of solutions that remain deaf and mute to God's word. Such Gospels have no connection to Jesus and his reign. But there's something else that Jesus' coming changes. In verses 5 to 8, he'll change what we value. The advent of the king changes what we value. Fools and scoundrels will no longer be held up. And in case it's not clear what a fool is, verse 6 defines him. Someone who pursues sin, who preaches disloyalty against Yahweh, and who is happy to use those under him to gain what he wants. And in case we're not sure what the scoundrel is, verse 7 defines him. This man's more conniving, intentionally plotting to hurt the poor, willing to lie if it's expedient he abuses and then calls his victims the liars. He cheats and then pays his powerful lawyers to defend him. And those poor little plebeians who dare stand up against him, he crushes. Sadly, such fools and scoundrels are too often celebrated today. Because we value success, results, the lifestyle of the rich and famous. We value those who can get things done to deliver. So we celebrate fools and scoundrels. We elect them to office. We put them on boards. And we pay good money to read their books and watch their shows. But Jesus' kingdom is different. When he announces his kingdom values, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If you ache for justice, the true aim of your longing is Jesus and the kingdom he ushers in kingdom where God's precepts are again taken to heart, a kingdom where the world's values are flipped on their head, a kingdom where the king himself did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his own life as a ransom for many. Behold, the advent of a king who reigns in righteousness. But at verses 1 to 8, focus on the advent of a king. Verses 9 to 20, focus on the outpouring of the spirit. They begin with a scene we already looked at. Women who are at ease, complacent, enjoying their joyous houses in their exultant city. But these women are being told to tremble, in verse 11. To strip off their finery and beat their breasts in mourning, verse 12. Why is that? Because they're about to learn how ephemeral their stability is. Within about a year of Isaiah's prophecy, according to verse 10, the Assyrian army would ransack the countryside of Judah so that her crops would fail and her position would drastically worsen. But that would just be a taste. Ultimate judgment and destruction would be far worse. Isaiah moves on to talk about more than just the year away destruction of crops. And he begins to talk about the destruction of the hill and the tower and the city itself, the palace. Which would be some 120 years after the prophecy. Or if you think more of Jesus' cursing of the temple and the calamity that happened in AD 70, it would be some 700 years later. Can I ask you to think about a question this morning? What makes you feel stable and at ease? Is it a job? A savings account? Your own physical capacity or your mental capacity? Like Israel with Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it can all be taken away. Instead of a joyous city, it'll be a place joyous donkeys are running wild, as verse 14 points out. And yet, the judgment, the judgment that's coming is not forever. The trembling and the beating of breasts is not perpetual. It has an expiry date. Like all the medicine in my medicine cabinet that we're still using. (laughs) Everything changes in verse 15. When the Spirit is poured out from on high, then the land will again flourish. And the land will be marked by Justice and righteousness. You see the pairing again in verse 16. You ever think about the fruit of the Spirit? What's the fruit of the Spirit according to Isaiah? Righteousness that leads to peace, verse 17. Righteousness that leads to quiet trust in King Jesus. And then look at where the Spirit takes us. Verse 18 is really exciting to me. We're going to dwell, it says, in secure dwellings. That word secure is the same root word as the word complacent that was repeated several times in verses 9 to 11. You see see what's going on? In other words, your false sense of security, your complacency, will give way to a truly secure dwelling. But there's more. The word quiet in verse 18 is the same Hebrew word as at ease in verse 9. In other words, your false sense of calm will give way to a truly quiet habitation. Do you see what's happening by putting both end, those words at both ends? For these handbag-clutching women, God is stripping them away of all that gives them the illusion of security, but that's because he's offering them something greater, a better rest, a better a better quiet, a better security, which means that God cares about the complacent women. So many of our man-made solutions to injustice pit oppressor versus oppressed, privileged versus marginalized, but God's heart is for both. Both need a Savior. Both need a better hope. Both need a better security. That's why verse 19 describes again just how fragile earthly Jerusalem is and it's why verse 20 ends with a happy description of stability that the Spirit will ultimately bring. Righteousness and justice, security and quiet, peace, the fruit of of the Spirit in Isaiah. When the Spirit is poured out upon us, that's what he brings. Which may prompt the question, when is all this fulfilled? It's a glorious picture, but when does it happen? I mean, Jesus already came. That's why we celebrate Christmas the Spirit already came. That's why we celebrate Pentecost, right? Pentecost trees and Pentecost carols. Well, We don't celebrate in the same way, and there's reasons for that. But are these prophecies already fulfilled? The answer is kind of. Let me explain. You see, we today live in a unique era that's sandwiched between the two comings of Jesus. He came first to show God's love and offer a way for repenting sinners to be forgiven by giving himself as a sacrifice. And then he's going to come that second time to usher in the fullness of his perfect kingdom. Now if he'd skipped this first coming and gone right to the second, none of us would have been able to enjoy the beauty of that kingdom because all of us, sinners and rebels that we are would be on the receiving end of his wrath when he comes. And so that's why he comes twice. And we're sandwiched between these two comings. So there are ways in which these promises are partially fulfilled already. Yes, the the fullness of God's kingdom isn't here, but he's building a new humanity through his church that should be marked by the fruit of the Spirit, like love and peace and goodness. Which means that we have work to do on this earth. Remember those princes that reign with King Jesus? According to Revelation 5.10 or 2 Timothy 2.12, that's us. So if God's given us any privilege or power, it's not something to be embarrassed by or apologize for. It's something to steward. It's a privilege bestowed upon us that we can use to bless and serve others. Where we have influence, we can be just and merciful and meek and kind. But the kingdom is yet only Partially fulfilled. Because we still have this flesh clinging to our bodies. We're not yet fully redeemed. And so we, as the church, both individually and collectively, mess up. Some of you have been hurt by that. That's sad. Sad for me. What what heirs have been made in the name of Christ. And moreover, we still live in a fallen world. So until Jesus returns the second time, we won't know the fullness of the promises mentioned here. We only get a taste of them. So when is it fulfilled? In some ways already, in some ways not yet. Partial fulfillment awaiting complete fulfillment. I want to end the sermon where I began. How does the prophet shape our thinking about hot button issues like social justice? I don't want to be too prescriptive, but I just want to give a sense that it actually does. So, first of all, it makes us incredibly suspicious of any complacent and at ease religious leaders who somehow use the Bible to dull our hearts to the cries of the oppressed. Second, it affirms that there is an inherent brokenness in our world that leads to those in power taking advantage of those without power. But it also makes us suspicious of any ultimate solution to these problems that isn't rooted in God, His King, and His Spirit. That doesn't entail turning back to a right view of God that allows His truth to be treasured in our hearts. In other words, Isaiah makes us wary of false gospels that prey upon a right desire for justice. Finally, it calls us to take action as God's princes, living out his kingdom priorities where the meek are blessed, where those in power use it to serve, challenging us to seek the fruit of the spirit that brings peace and stability for those in our spheres of influence. And that's not an exhaustive list. I, I just want to you give, give you a sense of how helpful the Bible is. I don't need to parse out every theory and counter-theory that hits the news cycle. I can just give us the prophets. It might be hard work, but it's the foundation we need to think today. More importantly... Our passage leads us somewhere timeless, immune to the churnings of the news cycle. It actually leads us right here to the Lord's table, a table which has seen countless vogue philosophies and yet has remained unchanged, a message of hope. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death on our behalf, until he returns. For 2,000 years, across the globe, in huts and cathedrals, Christians have been gathering to celebrate the great king and his death on our behalf, even as we long for his return and the fullness that it brings So, as we prepare our hearts for this, join me in prayer. Father, I know I don't know every story in this room. You do. And you know the cries in hearts because of abuse, because of lies. Because of people who've used power in wrong ways, because of prejudice and bias, discrimination, the cogs of injustice in this world. And while there's some in this room who don't feel that, and you have the spirit, know that cry is an important cry. So as we take of the bread and the cup here before us, we celebrate a king who loves us enough to have sent to have come into this world to die for us in our place to reconcile to us to you. And we long for when he comes back. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.